we are in 1 Kings uh, chapter 19. I kind of want to uh, survey both of these chapters, both meaning 1 Kings 18 and 19. As these are some of the most pivotal chapters that come, I think, in the life of the prophet Elijah, one of God's most powerful and prominent prophets as we find him in the Old Testament. What I think is interesting about Elijah's life is that these two chapters represent, uh, I think, well, again, a really pivotal moment. And they come in the form of this, this season, this bout of disappointment that arises in Elijah's life. Now, that might strike you as odd, especially as one who is one of God's most, again, powerful prophets. And yet he feels quite uh, intimately uh, disappointment discouragement in his life. Now, it's impossible for anyone to live live in this life for any length of time without feeling some sort of disappointment in some form or fashion. Uh, That's not meant to just be, you know, in Eeyore and in the Hundred Acre Wood. It's just meant to say that that's life, so to speak. Uh, In some form or fashion, whether we are uh, old or young, we will feel disappointment, uh, either through uh, some sort of Uh, often some sort of person letting us down, some sort of uh, circumstance letting us down. We are often made to be dismayed or disillusioned. Actually, if you look up the the word disappointment in the dictionary, it says uh, someone or something that has failed to fulfill your hopes or expectations, which I think is a really apt definition and one that really kind of gives some insight Uh, Not only into the emotion of disappointment, but also into the life of Elijah. This something that he expected to happen did not happen. Disappointment comes though in many forms or fashions. As I said, people disappoint us. Leaders let us down. Uh, How many times can you uh, say that you are expecting this certain person to fulfill this certain thing in your life. And then they uh, have a huge moral failing. Or they have a big letdown in their life. Or they are not the person that you thought that they were. Or friends or family. uh, Something major happens in your relationship. And now this family that was close is now no longer. Or perhaps something that you were expecting to happen, a promotion, uh, a house that you were hoping to close on, some sort of event in your life was, was, uh, that was super uh, pivotal, one that you were expecting and banking on did not occur. That sort of happy ending, so to speak, that you were relying on didn't happen, it didn't come about. And sometimes we often disappoint ourselves. I can speak from experience on that. The things that we thought that we have gotten over, they somehow rear their ugly head again. And there we are saying and doing that same thing that we said to God that we would never do. We disappoint ourselves, all of which is to say, whether it's people or circumstances or our own selves, disappointment is a reality of life. One which we are all made to feel and experience at some time or another. But what do you do, though? I think this is the question of these chapters in 1 Kings. What do you do when the person, when the one who is disappointing us is none other than God himself? I think that's the question that I think rises to the surface here in these chapters. What do you do when, when the events of your life seem to indicate that God has willingly, sort of purposefully chosen a more painful route for your life? It's disappointing. The thing that you expected to happen did not happen. 
The person that you expected to be there, God has taken away. And you locate all of those feelings of of difficulty and disappointment in the one who was supposed to be your God, as as we feel. It's hard not to be disappointed at him when these events kind of arise. And we ask this question, why did you do this? I think of uh, certain instances. Again, like losing a job. You were expecting that this was to be your career and God forced you out of it. Or you expected this person to be, quote, the one. And he, take, he took him or her out of your life. Or perhaps there was a bad diagnosis from the doctor. You contracted cancer. You contracted some other sort of disease or illness. We lose a loved one. There are many events we can point to and we can say to God, why did you do this? You disappointed me. There are seasons when it doesn't feel as though God is for us. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. But interestingly enough, that's exactly where we find Elijah. The, the prophet of God. The one who is called, as the word prophet means, the voice of Jehovah. He is a messenger of the creator. And he's finding a lot of disappointment in the one he was made to represent. The one he was called to speak on behalf of. That's where we find him at the beginning of 1 Kings 19. Look with me in verses 1 through 3. As we're just going to kind of walk through this story in Elijah's life. Look at what happens. In Ahab, it says in verse 1, told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and withal how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me. And more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow. About this time. And when he saw that, when Elijah saw that, he arose and went for his life. Elijah is on the run. Elijah has received this death threat from the evil queen Jezebel, and he literally is sprinting for his life. And notice it says, and he came to Beersheba. I'm reminded in this instance of the prophet, another prophet, many uh, years and centuries later, the prophet Jonah, who went to the uttermost parts of the earth that he knew of at that time to get away from God's will. This is what Elijah is doing. He's going to Beersheba, the southernmost city in Israel. He's trying to get as far away from this threat as possible. He's trying to escape this moment as far away as possible from certain death. That's where he's running to. He's trying to get as far away as he can from this moment. And notice it says, And he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. What a disappointing prayer. (laughs) What a sad prayer to come out of the words of a prophet. This one who was supposed to be the voice of Jehovah. He's now taking refuge in the wilderness as far as he can get away. And he's crying out to God, just take my life. I don't even want to be here anymore. Just let me die. He's disappointed in himself, I think, but also in the one he was called to represent, Jehovah. This is 
A really remarkable portrait, is it not, of Elijah, God's prophet. Especially when you contrast it with the portrait that we are given of him in just the previous chapter. In chapter 18, we are given a portrait of Elijah in which he is cunning. He's a little bit witty. (laughs) He has all sorts of bravado about him. He's a prophet that we imagine him to be. This is primarily evidenced through that famous account that starts in verse 20 of chapter 18. Where we have that infamous contest between he and the prophets of Baal at the foot of Mount Carmel. Go there in verse uh, verse 20. Chapter 18 verse 20 it says. Or um, where it says, so Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, how long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. Then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I only, remain a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let them therefore give us two bullocks. And let them choose one bullock for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood and put no fire under. And I will dress the other bullock and lay it on the wood and put no fire under. You remember perhaps this contest. He sets up this event. Which he and the prophets of Baal will make these altars and put a bull on each one. And see who is God can consume that altar in fire first. He's setting up this competition so to speak. This challenge Whose deity is more powerful? It's almost like a game show. You can imagine him (laughs) setting up the events, setting up all the rules. This is how we're going to do it. And you remember that he allows the prophets of Baal to go first. Verse 25, and Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, choose you one bullock for yourselves and dress it first for ye are many and call the name of your gods, but put no fire under. And they took the bullock which was given them and they dressed it and called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon saying, Oh, Baal, hear us. But there was no voice nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar which was made. Notice, I love how this story goes on. Elijah knows. He allows them to go first because he knows that there's going to be no answer. And he lets these prophets of Baal sort of embarrass themselves as they're praying and crying. They're making this big show. And notice, I love how he taunts them. This is where we get that sort of witty side of Elijah. Look at verse 27. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them. (laughs) He's making fun of them. And he said, cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is talking or he is pursuing or he is in a journey or peradventure he sleepeth and must be awoken. Maybe he's thinking it over. Cry louder. Maybe he's pondering what to do with your bull. Maybe he's wandering off. Maybe he's on vacation. Cry louder. Maybe he's sleeping. You got to wake him up. But their prayers were useless. Verse 28, and they cried aloud and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets to the blood gushed out upon them. And it came to pass when midday was passed and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that there was neither voice nor any to answer nor any that regarded. No one was paying attention. 
Namely because they were praying and crying out to a God who wasn't alive. It was just an image. It was just an imagination. There was no one listening. That's why Elijah was making fun of them. And he proceeds then to trounce these prophets in very embarrassing fashion. If you remember the story, we won't read all the verses. But remember, he douses his altar. I think it's four times in water. Having men, these, these servants go out and get large vats of water. He's stacking the deck against himself, against his God. And he's dousing his own altar in water. Making it harder for it to catch flame. And yet when he calls upon the Lord. Notice verse 37. Hear me O Lord hear me. That this people may know that thou art the Lord God. And that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust. And licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces. And they said, the Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. And Elijah said unto them, take the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they took them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slew them there. An incredible moment. An incredible moment in the life of Elijah and in the history of God's people to be sure. One that I think would uh, really rightly serve as a warning to any other prophets in the surrounding nations. (laughs) Don't mess with this God. He is powerful. Infinitely powerful. He doesn't just consume the offering. He consumes everything around the offering, including all of the water that was in the trench surrounding the altar. He is a total God of total power. And yet, what Elijah expected to happen did not happen. He has this victory. I think the expectation was that this would start an incredible turning of the Lord's people back to him. Including these people of these four nations. And then we come back to chapter 19. He receives this threat. A threat from Queen Jezebel. And then he runs. He runs away. Again, as far away as he can get. He's disappointed. He has been threatened. He feels abandoned. He feels isolated. And so what does Elijah do? He uh, ditches both God's people and God's call for his life. And he sulks in the wilderness. Under a tree. God, take away my life. I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to do what you have called me to do. I'm done. It's... A disappointing scene to see one of God's own people uh, enter into this state, this emotional state. But what I love is that God doesn't leave him there. God doesn't leave one of his people to sit and to sulk in just his sorrow. Notice verse 5. And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, tree, excuse me, behold... Then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake, bacon on the coals, and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink, and and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time, and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. 
And he arose and did eat and drink and went into the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights into Horeb, the mount of God. So here, Elijah does what he's told. This angel of the Lord is sent to replenish Elijah physically as well as spiritually. Basically, he says, take care of yourself, Elijah. Get up and eat. You got to take care of yourself. So Elijah does. He ends up journeying to Mount Horeb, as it says there in verse 9. And he came thither unto a cave and lodged there. He's taking refuge there. He's no longer out in the middle of nowhere. Now he's at Mount Horeb. And this is where God finds him, which leads us to our text, verse 9. And he came thither unto a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him. And And he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? What are you doing here? Why are you here hiding in this cave? Why are you here avoiding what the Lord, what I have called you to do? And this leads Elijah to snap at God. Think of someone snapping at someone else after they've been disappointed by that person. He says, I have been very jealous, very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel, and uh, have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with a sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. You notice Elijah here? He's disappointed at the fact that all of these people have left their devotion to God. He feels alone. He feels like he's been abandoned. And according to Elijah, God has let this happen. You've let this happen, God. You've let all these people turn away from you. Notice this happens twice. Verse 10 and verse 14 are almost the same exact retort unto God himself. And if you look at it, look at verse 10 again. I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. You notice how Elijah... Is sort of disconnecting himself from all the failure that's around him. He's saying everyone else has left you. Everyone else has abandoned you. Everyone else has failed you. And I, even I only am left. He's almost putting himself on a pedestal. I'm the only one. I'm the only one that hasn't deserted you. Even though everyone else has. The once sort of cavalier spokesman of the Lord has now seemingly lost his faith in everything that's surrounding him, including his God. You've let this happen. You've let all of these people fall away from you. And now I'm the only one left to speak up. Disappointment has seemingly won. Seemingly got the victory in this prophet's life. Which brings me to this point. When we feel disappointment in life, this feeling I think that we get, it's, I think this, we get, excuse me, we get disappointment when we, when we no longer bow to the God of all things and instead we start to bow to the God of results. Let me say that again. 
Disappointment is the feeling we get when we no longer bow to the God of all things and instead start to bow to the God of results. You see, Elijah was sort of, again, to use that phrase we used this morning, putting all of his proverbial eggs in a certain basket of a specific result that, result that he was expecting to happen. He was counting on something to occur. That after this monumental victory at the hand of God that he witnessed, he was expecting more results to occur. And yet, that doesn't happen. And he feels let down, he feels deserted, and he feels disappointed. How many of you can relate to that? Again, remember, he had witnessed firsthand the results of the Lord's power. Chapter 18, we just went through that. Very clear example. These are very firsthand, vivid results of divine intervention in the world. You see, Elijah's failure, I think, was in expecting or in believing, in trusting that that was the normal operational procedure of God. <laughs> that these boisterous, very vivid, very distinguishable results are how God always works. That this is his normal operative involvement in the world. He expected results to happen in the aftermath of Mount Carmel. And when those results never came, he ran. He fled. The results that he expected to see never came about. Again, step back. Why do you think he ran to Mount Horeb? Why do you think he went there to that location? Elijah is sleeping in this place, taking refuge in a cave, Mount Horeb, a.k.a. Mount Sinai. The place where, uh, of course, we know the significant, most significant historical and spiritual mountain in all of Israel's history, perhaps. The place where God's law was founded, where God's glory was most chiefly known for God's people. I think he's, he's waiting for another powerful, measurable result from God. He's waiting in a place where he figured, where he was thinking and believing, waiting for God to do something. Waiting for another divine result. I may even say he's waiting for another repeat instance of chapter 18. He wants more fire to come down. More incredible monumental display of glory, of divine results being taken place. But that's not what God does. And such is why God calls Elijah out of the cave to remind him, to remind Elijah where God can be found. Notice verse 11. And he said, go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. That's where God was. 
And that still small voice. Or as it is in other translations, a soft whisper. Not in something demonstrable, not in something uh, powerful or measurable, but in the silence, in the soft tones of a whisper. That's where the Lord was found. God's words to Elijah reminded him that there were still things that needed to be accomplished. Again, Elijah sort of balks at the Lord again in verse 14. And notice what the Lord says to him in verse 15. Verse 14 is essentially a same, a repeat of verse 10. And the Lord retorts to him. And the Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when thou comest, anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha. The son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, shalt thou anoint to be, pro- be prophet in thy room. And it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Haziel shall Jehu slay. And him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet I have left me seven thousand in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath, hath not kissed him. These were God's assignments to Elijah. Again, what I see and hear. Assignments, tasks, that may not be as glamorous per se as Mount Carmel. He doesn't get to call on God to bring fire down and slay the prophets of Baal. Elijah had a job to do as God's voice. Essentially, God is reminding him, (laughs) hey, you still got work to do. You still have things that need, that need to be accomplished. These are part of your calling, Elijah. I'm found here. And yes, and sometimes unglamorous, unremarkable duties and unremarkable jobs. God's assurance to Elijah that, yes, regardless of what you might feel, how regardless of how disappointed you might feel, my intentions, Elijah, are still being carried out. You see, I love this chapter. Because it reminds us that the calling of all God's people is one thing, is to be faithful. Faithful. Faithfulness, I should say, is not always seen. In fact, I would say it's rarely ever seen in very boisterous numbers or results. Actually, I would say this. Faithfulness is seldom defined by results. If you're looking, I wrote this down. If you're looking for a profitable return on investment, then sharing the gospel is probably not the best career choice. It's hard. It's hard to know how much return on investment, ROI, you're going to get when you're sharing the gospel to a room full of people. Much less especially to a room full of children. Does that negate the responsibility to be faithful in that moment? There are a number of stories I could relate to you regarding missionaries who have sold everything to evangelize some foreign nation only to never see a single convert their whole career. Does that mean 
that they had done something wrong? Does that mean that they weren't faithful to the task to which God appointed them? I would hasten to say no. Faithfulness isn't always seen in boisterous results. I think actually it's primarily seen in a dogged determination for the things of God despite the results. Despite what we expect to happen. I came across this story. And I found it so incredible. There was once a missionary to, uh, to the Congo in 1912. His name was Dr. William Leslie. And after 17 years of missionary service in this nation, the Congo, he returned to the United States in 1929 feeling incredibly defeated and discouraged. And he died only seven years later after that in 1936. He was depressed. I would rightly say disappointed because he thought that his work there in the Congo was a failure. He had really made no converts. He had left no sort of lasting impact or he had no sort of big legacy he could point to and say, look at the work that God has blessed here in this village. Interestingly enough, well, let me say this. So he, he passed away feeling that he had let God down. And also I would maybe say, perhaps I'm reading into him, that God had let him down. He had made no sort of conversion or incredible uh, return to God by, uh, by, uh, on the hearts of these people. And yet 80 some years later, a team of missionaries returned to this same exact village that Leslie had evangelized. And to their surprise, what did they find? An abundance of healthy, thriving churches. Churches in this place that Leslie had left feeling that he had let down. In a news report regarding this moment, a writer, a journalist reports, when we got in there, we found a network of reproducing churches throughout the jungle. And one missionary reported, each village had its own gospel choir. The missionaries found a church in each of the eight villages they visited scattered across 34 miles. The team even found a 1,000-seat stone cathedral in one of the villages. This church got so crowded in the 1980s with many walking miles to attend that a church planting movement began in the surrounding villages. All tied back to a missionary who thought that he had disappointed these people and had disappointed God. Because he didn't see the results that he was expecting. Faithfulness. It's what God calls us to. The point of it all, I think, is there to see that there's one who is with you regardless of the moment or the season of life you're in. Whether it's in victory or in defeat. Whether it's in a season of triumph or in disappointment. God's calling on our lives is to be faithful Regardless of the results that we see. This is what I pray to define my own ministry here at Stonington Baptist Church. No. I, I would love. I would love more than anything for this church to be busting at the doors. For people to be jockeying for seats. Because it's so crowded. If God would bless, I pray that that would happen. But even if he doesn't. We're going to be faithful to the word of God. Regardless of what that brings. 
We don't change our message to bring in the results that we want to see. To bring in the results that we want to come about. The outcomes that we want to accomplish. Such, I think, is, would be to abandon God's call. Because sometimes we are on the mountaintop. And we're seeing incredible results from God. And sometimes we're not. And we're having to do pretty unremarkable jobs. Steady, pointed, determined faithfulness. Whether you're in this moment of incredible revival or whether you're in sort of the doldrums, sort of pressing and keep pressing forward. Those are the seasons of ministry. I'll, I'll confess that I've seen that even in my own, dad, my, my own dad's ministry life. It's not always that you get to see demonstrable results. And that's not the point. The point is not to always chase those results. The point is to be faithful. To press forward. To press into the word and the truth of God. Which doesn't change. Which is the same whether results are coming or not. So you see for Elijah. And for us. oftentimes we get disappointed. Because we're expecting something to happen that God has not promised us. What he would rather us see is that he is there with us on the mountaintop and in the valley. In the, the triumph or in the defeat. When people disappoint you, God is there. He's with you. When circumstances leave you crushed and devastated, God is there. When you have let yourself down, when you've done it, that proverbial sin that defines your life for the umpteenth time after you've already confessed over and over again that you will not return to it, God's there too. He's that type of a faithful God. Whose presence, I like to say, is unshakable. You cannot sort of get away from him. (laughs) And that same faithfulness, we are called to exemplify, to have define our lives as well. Which presses forward regardless of the results that we see. It's faithfulness in every moment. In every moment of our lives and every single time when we feel defeated or disappointed or let down. Because our God is faithful. Great is his faithfulness as the hymn says. As the verse says in Lamentations 3. This is our God. A God of great faithfulness. And may we be called to do and live the same. Let us pray.